Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Okay, so we are joined here today by Jill Davis. Jill, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm a private practice audiologist in Austin, Texas. So I've um, owned my clinic since 2019. Um, yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah, I've gotten to know you a little bit uh, over the last few months. Uh, we met down in the uh, FCOM in Florida, the um, Florida Combined Otolaryngology Meeting. I think that's what FCOM stands for. And uh, I know that, you know, when I was down there, I saw you present um, on Cognibue. So this is a really cool and interesting company. Um, and the reason I wanted to have you on is, you know, I could, and I probably will eventually have somebody from Cognibue, the company, but you are a private practitioner using Cognibue. And I think that's super interesting to uh, talk through. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to just kind of like understand how this all came to be and what the experience has been like. And, I, you know, as we have this conversation, just um, helping to, uh, you know, share with us how this whole thing works. So why don't we start? Um, so you're based in Austin, Texas, you have victory hearing imbalances, your uh, private practice. Um, so help me to, to understand, because I know you were working at an ENT before that, but when you started um, victory, were you immediately looking for like new ways to sort of, you know, enhance the overall patient experience or, or what ultimately led you to Cognivue or did it sort of find you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of a long story, uh, but actually <laughs> I was looking for a solution for my patients that struggle to hear in background noise. That's where it all started, that it was a consistent complaint with everyone walking in the door um, and hearing aids didn't seem to help with everyone. So we were looking into auditory training options with them and um I started creating a music-based auditory training program for those patients, and that took a lot of reading literature on neuromusical research and finding that people who play instruments actually have better memory and executive function than those who don't, and I wanted a way to screen that. So it actually just by chance, when I started working on this program, Cognivue was at the ADA convention that year in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I said, ah, perfect. I need that one because that looks really easy. Where the other (laughs) cognitive screeners that I was looking into, you had to, you know, do a training, you had to paper and pencil test. And it just looked a little overwhelming that I just kind of put it off where Cognivue self-administered patient does it themselves. It's not much more that I had to do. So I signed up because I wanted to use it for those patients who are struggling to hear in background noise as a pre and post training outcome measure. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a funny way that that happened. Um, but I also, you know, I was counseling my patients on that ear to brain connection. So I had, um, learned about, you know, the Johns Hopkins in 2011, when he said hearing loss leads to cognitive decline. And, you know, that, that was surprising for us. I think we already knew it, but let's like yeah. see it in the literature. It really, I, I wasn't comfortable explaining that connection to my patients yet until I saw Anu Sharma present her research on cortical reorganization that occurs with untreated hearing loss. She showed those beautiful functional MRI studies. And I was sitting there and the light bulb went off. Like, this is what's happening with my patients. This is what they're telling me when they're feeling like they're struggling. Now I could make that connection. And it just completely changed the way that I counseled and we talked about what they were going through. And so I had, I had been doing that for, you know, quite a few years. And then once the cognitive screening was available, it was like, now I have a way to show them what they're feeling instead of just explaining what could be happening with them when they feel like things are starting to change and they're more forgetful. I could say, I have a test that we can do to see how you're doing. And so that was kind of a game changer to actually have 
a number and a report to show them how they were performing because they feel like things are changing when you start to talk to them about that ear and brain connection. Yeah, I find this whole thing to be so fascinating. So when you say you had this light bulb moment, like clearly this was something that uh, you and probably many other audiologists were, were, uh, you know, you, you sort of knew that there was something there, but like it, like you said, until you started to see it from different research entities like Johns Hopkins, and it's reported within clinical studies and it's in the literature, then, you know, it really does become apparent. And I'm curious. So you had mentioned that you're sitting in this presentation, the light bulb goes off. What, what exactly was it, um, in, in simple terms, uh, for somebody like me to, to wrap my brain around, like <clears throat> what, what was it that <clears throat> was like a really clear connection in your mind of what was happening here? Yeah. So she first, so in New Sharma, their lab in Colorado, they looked at patients with severe to profound hearing loss and they did functional studies of the brain when they would present visual and auditory and tactile stimulus to these patients. Um, and they did that with severe to profound profound hearing loss, and then again with mild hearing loss. And what they found was someone who has hearing loss, when they presented a visual stimulus, the hearing part of the brain lit up, and that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> when they okay. presented a hearing stimulus, the frontal lobe lit up, and that's not supposed to happen. And so the way that I explain it to the patients is that with just a mild amount of hearing loss, your vision takes over your hearing, and that's why you hear better when you're looking at the person. And from there, your hearing actually gets pushed to the frontal lobe, and that's where working memory and recall is. So when you're oh hearing gosh. with the wrong part of your brain, you're working harder than you should have to, and you're going to become a little bit more forgetful. And so these people are more tired at the end of the day. They really have to look at the person, and that's why masks has caused such a problem for our patients because oh, they're yeah. finally realizing how much they relied on that visual cue. Um, and I just tell them it's not your fault. You know, your brain starts to change to compensate for that loss and you're just working harder than you should have to. So, so what's really interesting now, this takes me back to a conversation I had, uh, Dr. David Eagleman. I actually had him on the podcast before and his book live wired. Um, uh, the whole premise of the book is that you, whether it's aging or um, if you're born maybe with uh, some sort of disablement. So if you're blind or you're deaf, um, the way in which your brain live, you know, he, he refers to it as live wiring. Like it's like uh, the neuroplasticity of it is constantly evolving and adapting. And everything that you're describing is basically that where as you age, your and, and as your hearing depreciates, uh, certain portions of your brain overcompensate for that. And so it's truly like your frontal lobe is basically playing the role that historically, you know, a, a different portion of your brain has. And that's the first thing that stands out in my mind with that, because um, there is neuroscience that really speaks to this whole theme. And, and, and that makes so much sense in my opinion, which is again, just a testament to our brains are like these amazing and mysterious things that there's so much happening kind of below the surface that you know, it's like, aha, now that really does make sense. Mm -hmm. And, and patients feel it and they know it. And it's more common for someone to tell me they have a difficult time hearing when they're not looking at the person or if they're in the other room than a patient to just offer up. I'm starting to for, be more forgetful and my memory is not as sharp. They always usually introduce the eye connection. And that's how I can kind of keep it all together and make it make sense because, um, of those studies that, that big presentation, it just, I, I say it every day, all day. <laughs> yeah. Well, but this is, this is what's so interesting. And this is why, like, I really latched on to your presentation and immediately was like, can I please get you on the podcast? Um, is this idea that, you know, I feel like, one of the most uh, exciting paths forward for audiology is this domain of being the liaison between the world of hearing and hearing loss and really trying to identify some of the underlying things that are going on. Because I think that what's becoming really apparent is that it's not just like the knob gets turned down on your ears. Like there's so much more that's going on here. And I'd be really curious, you know, um, whether it's Cognitive View and 
but it, based on your presentation, it sounds like there's a whole battery of things that you're doing. So can you kind of like walk me through what this evaluation looks like? Um, you know, I know that it probably starts with a hearing assessment, but can you help me understand all of the different things that you're trying to do within the, the patient um, experience today in, within your clinic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I'm trying to figure out before we get started is, will I be working with a problem with the ears or the brain or both? Because everyone that walks into my clinic is usually explaining a listening difficulty. They talk about hearing loss and a listening difficulty, and they're, those are different things. And so I want to check the whole central auditory system so that I can address their hearing and their brain. And so we start by handicap inventories because I want to know how they're feeling about their issues. And a lot of times we can have a pretty significant handicap with no measurable hearing loss. So something is causing them to struggle and I need to help them figure that out. So for example, 10% of the people that come in, they complain of difficulty hearing a noise, but they have normal thresholds, technically normal on the audiogram, um, and they don't pass the cognitive screening. So those are the folks that need an auditory processing evaluation. We talk about maybe hidden hearing loss, super threshold listening disorders, and they benefit from auditory training. And so, um, you know, the handicap is my first step to seeing their motivation, um, but I also need to talk about comorbidities. So we do a screening for me to understand what else could be impacting their scores today. Um, Do they have diabetes, hypertension? Are they on multiple medications? There's a lot of things that look like hearing loss when they're actually other medical conditions. Um, We do the whole um, hearing test battery, including speech and noise, which is very important because that is the central auditory test that we start with, and then the Cognivue. And so you know, um, they're going to come in, we review their history, we talk about that ear to brain connection, we go in the booth after otoscopy, tympanometry, and then um, speech and noise testing. I have a cognitive set up in a separate room. And so after we get through the booth test, I just walk them over there and I explain the instructions on what they're about to do. It's not a separate test. It's not something that I introduce as a cognitive screen. It's just part of my battery, just like speech and noises and bone conduction. It's just something that I do on everybody. And I do that on everybody because I'm not looking for dementia Alzheimer's. I'm looking for a listening difficulty and I'm looking for the brain's ability to process speech. And so Cognivue is calibrated for everyone over the age of 18. So I'm going to do it on all of those patients just so I can understand how they're functioning real world. I love that because it's like another piece of the puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like helping you fill in the blanks of your own assessment of what's going on with the patient. You're making a way more informed assessment and a recommendation in uh, based on this more comprehensive evaluation. And again, like the, one of the big reoccurring themes on the podcast over the last uh, four or five, six months has been this idea of like, as, as like kind of the, like, um, traditional brick and mortar model of hearing care, if you will, where it's very linearly focused on selling hearing aids. And that's not to say that that's what everybody does, but that's kind of the perception in the market. Um, And you have all of these new like access points of care going back to the dawn of big box retailers and Costco and the like. And then now you have all these online channels. And so it's like easier than ever to sell something that resembles a hearing aid, but it doesn't really speak to how like you as a audiologist can provide an entirely different offering. That's not commoditized. It's rooted in the evaluation of what's going on in that whole like brain and and ear link and everything that's going on there as well. And so I think that Again, this is what's really exciting to me is that the this creates a totally different path that you're not having to compete in any sense of, you know, it's not really based around the price of hearing aids or it's just totally different. You're going and you're seeing you as opposed to someone that is primarily focused on selling hearing aids. You know, I think that that's what's really encouraging is that there is this, this seemingly like under undercurrent of, of a lot more Uh, equipment and tools that cater more toward how you can be this more comprehensive um, medical professional. And that's what really speaks to me about Cognivue. And I want to get into Cognivue, but wanted to just kind of get your thoughts there. 
Yeah, so the, the cognitive screening piece really dictates the treatment plan, and there is a place for over-the-counter direct consumer products mm-hmm. when we are screening these patients to know, do they fall into that perceived mild to moderate hearing loss range? Um, can they troubleshoot a device and figure out how to take care of an over-the-counter device based on that cognitive function? So how I have 10% of the people that have no measurable loss they may be great candidates for um, a device and amplifier that they could wear as needed in those challenging environments. And then 30% of the patients coming in have just hearing loss with normal cognition. Those are the great patients. Those are the ones that I know no matter what we do, they're going to be happy. They can figure it out. Like they like the technology. They don't come back for repeat appointments over and over. Those are the ones that if they do fall into that mild to moderate, maybe we do start talking about over the counter and, and peace mm-hmm. apps. And um, I'm okay with that for them. If it's, if that's what takes them getting started sooner than later, then that is a great solution for you. Now we started looking at the data to see how many patients in that mild to moderate hearing loss range actually passed the cognitive test. And it's anecdotally, not as much, many as you would expect. And so that's why we think it's still important to be evaluated and to get yes. that piece, because even if you fall into the hearing loss range, maybe there's something that's going to get in the way that this is not going to be a good fit for you. And you need something that's more verified that we know is creating the stimulation that you need to improve your cognitive function. And so there's a place where it fits. If we know the cognitive piece and what we're working with, there is definitely ways that we can create a better treatment plan for them once we know that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so with Cognivue, um, I guess let's get into a little bit about what this is. So um, it, you know, kind of almost looks like an arcade game. Um, it's like a briefcase size or like a laptop size device and you have the screen and then you have like a joystick. Um, I actually did it when I was in FCOM. I had, I, I, uh, I did it and it's, so it's measuring memory, visual, spatial, and executive function. And then there's also two speed performance parameters. It's looking at reaction time and processing speed, which is unique to a computerized test. So we don't do that with paper and pencil tests. We can't look at reaction time. So um, the benefit of Cognivue, so it's adaptive psychophysics. So the little Cogniwheel that you use to answer questions, it's calibrated for your vision and dexterity first before the test even begins. Mm. And so there really isn't like an age difference. You know, it's it, the test gets presented to the person after that calibration based on how they answered. So if they may have been a little bit slower, they're going to make the answers a little easier. Um, if their vision was really great, they're going to make it really difficult. And mm-hmm. so that's what's unique to Cognivue. But what I like the my main draw and why I present this to physicians is why computerized self-administered screening is best is our patients have hearing loss. And the other cognitive screens, those paper and pencil, they have to listen to instructions and they have to repeat back words that they may or may not have heard correctly because a lot of times we're doing this before they get treated with hearing loss or hearing aids. And so we completely remove the ears out of the equation with the Cognivue because they're reading the instructions. There's nothing that they have to listen to. There are videos, but they're captioned. And so then we know we're isolating cognition and the ears are not getting in the way. And I think that's huge, especially if hearing loss is the number one modifiable risk to dementia. Like, how do we know that we're not testing dementia through a hearing loss? (laughs) And so that's my big thing and how I tell physicians why they should send to me because I have this where we don't have to rely on the hearing. So, so that, that's a piece too, that I found to be just absolutely fascinating. I'm actually looking on my second monitor here. I took a screenshot or I took a, a picture of, uh, your, one of the slides that you had, which was around referral sources. And, you know, you have this just massive jump in referrals that you had gotten from physicians and, I'm really curious about this. So how, you know, it seems to me that like, um, as soon as you can make a a physician aware that this thing exists within your clinic, that they're going to be sending people your way, but help me to actually understand that how this whole thing has kind of gone down. Like, are you doing the outreach um, or are they kind of seeking you out or how, how have they become aware of the fact that you have Cognivue and, and on what basis are they typically sending people to you? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, so when I bought the practice, it was a pretty sweet setup where I rent from a group of primary care physicians. That's nice. <laughs> so I was able to um, talk to them about this and get their feedback where I know a lot of private practice audiologists don't have that set up. Um, and so, you know, I, I got to learn what they thought of me doing it, which they were like, yes, that's great. I don't have to, cause I'm too busy to do that. Yeah. However, um, when you took that screenshot, when I bought the practice, the previous audiologist spent a lot of money in advertising. So we were looking at where the referrals were coming from and mostly were online. Um, the reviews, we did get some primary care from the Victory Medical Group. Um, and then insurance was a big one and um, patient referrals. And so all I did after I got Cognivue was those patients that were coming to me from online referrals, from other patients, from insurance, I would just ask, can I send a report to your doctor? Because I was already sending them to the doctors that were referring to me, but I wasn't sending them if the patient just found me off the street. And so I just did more reports. And what that was, the audiogram, the findings, a short little line that said cognitive screening today, the results were outside of normal. We're going to treat the hearing loss and test again. Now, when we tested again, after I treated their hearing loss, I would send an introductory introductory letter saying what I was doing, what we found and my recommendations for further testing. And so without even nurturing those relationships, I started to see outside referrals. So I was getting groups of primary care that I had been sending to and I hadn't called them or anything. I was just like sending those out. So they, they saw my name, they, they were getting more reports. And then I took the initiative to call and say, this is what I'm doing. And this is why I'm doing it. Cognivue computerized takes the ears out of the equation, you know? And so now when they send referrals, it says hearing loss and cognitive screen. So mm. they have patients that they're asking and patients are asking them about cognitive screening and they're sending them here because they don't want to do it. And so, yeah, this year I was shocked at how many, um, outside physicians were sending, but also I'm getting audiology referrals and I was able to drop all of my third party for insurance for hearing yeah. aids. Um, and that's huge. So, which again, it speaks to the, the fact that you can do that is sort of a luxury of the fact that you have so many patients that are seeking you out else like otherwise. Um, and again, I think that's part of the power here of moving more in this direction where that's how you seemingly would differentiate from the pack is that, you know, again, this isn't really the same offering as all of these other avenues. It's something that's way more comprehensive. And, you know, I think that for a portion of the market, that's going to be really appealing, um, regardless of whatever happens with OTC. And, and like you said, like there's definitely a role for those products to play. Nobody's disputing that. But I think that the question is, what's like, how does the private practice audiologist remain viable in a scenario where they're competing, um, like their, their legacy business has is just competing on so many different fronts. And it's like, well, one way that you can compete is completely double down on your like audiology expertise and move into more of these areas. Like you said, where you're now presenting the, their, you know, physician with here was their hearing assessment and here's their cognition score. And knowing that there's this link between hearing loss and cognition, it seems really appropriate. Like this is what's so exciting is I feel like we as an industry and audiologists as a profession have the opportunity to really kind of like um, stake a flag in this ground and say like, this is our domain. You know, this is one thing that we're really uniquely suited to screen for. Absolutely. So when you have the partnerships with the physicians, you can spend less in advertising. <laughs> um, you don't have to worry about putting right. it out there as much. Um, but also there's that modifiable range. And so that's what the Lancet article said is like, if we can treat hearing loss midlife, we should possibly be able to stop the progression of cognitive decline. And so sometimes, you know, I've, I get asked, well, what's going to happen if you find it on somebody, you know, is the doctor going to do anything? But yes, because there's that, you know, the beauty of Cognivue is it's sensitive enough to mild cognitive impairment, which could be, you know, reversed possibly. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
where the tests that the doctors are already doing most that I talk to, they do the MMSE, which is only sensitive enough for dementia. So you're missing all of that mild. And a lot of our patients, it's not, you know, I, I test people under 65. It's not dementia. It's, it's something that's making them work harder. They're on lots of medications. They're not treating their sleep disorder. Like they um, have heart disease that's not under control. And so all of that presents like hearing loss. And so if we can empower them by going over those things to go talk to their doctor about, am I on the right medications, Mm -hmm. you know, then maybe we can improve their performance. Um, And so that's what's separating you. You don't have to be the expert in those other comorbidities, but just having that conversation with the patient for them to understand there's a lot of things that look like hearing loss and we've treated your hearing loss and we've done the best we can for you. Now let's get your doctor involved and see what else we can do to help you. So is that typically when you do one of the, or, you know, you have a result that comes back where there's poor cognition, um, what, what are those scenarios like? Are you, um, you know, usually redirecting them back to their primary care doctor um, or other specialty doctors, um, or are there things that you as the audiologist are able to do? Um, or are you primarily just screening for it and then making that sort of recommendation as to where they go next? Yeah. So 55% of the time people don't pass the screen the first time. And so I felt this was after I screened 300 patients and the average age was 60 years old. And so I felt like a lot of people were not passing. (laughs) Um, And so we looked at the results and it was like, yeah, a lot are not. And so I'm having this conversation a lot where they just come in for hearing loss, but they don't pass. And I say, you know, it looks like we're starting to see some change here. That was a little harder for you than we want it to be. And that makes sense because you have this hearing loss, you know, that's causing your brain to change to compensate. And, you know, the good news is that we can treat your hearing and we're going to test again and we're going to see what happens then. And so we've already prepped them that the number one thing to do is to treat your hearing loss right? um, because of that modifiable risk. But also if I'm sending them anywhere else, they're going to have to listen to the instructions of whole cognitive workup or a doctor visit. They're going to have to communicate. So I want to make sure that their hearing is ideal for that. So I test them again after their trial window, which in my clinic is 60 days. Um, and I just want to make sure that yes, it is time to refer because some of those patients get back up to normal. It was just their hearing loss and they just were having a bad day and they didn't pass the first time, but I want to test them again. And then from there, they're kind of ready. We've already prepped them for, I'm either going to pass or not, or something's going on. And then we revisit those comorbidities that they've told me they have and say, well, maybe it's time to talk about all those medicines. It's not good to be on 13 different medications, you know, so at least um, they have a plan for when I call the doctor and send over that report um, that there's something else they can look into other than, oh my gosh, it's memory. (laughs) Cause it's just a screen. It doesn't diagnose anything. I always tell them that this is not telling us too much but you are working harder than you should have to. So I feel like too, you know, you hear these stories and uh, I'm curious to get your take on this, but you hear these stories where, um, you know, someone goes, they, you know, whether they're like coming into the clinic, kicking and screaming and, and they walk away and okay, maybe they get fit with hearing aids, but they just put them in the drawer and they never wear them part of this. And I don't want to confuse this with like fear mongering, but it seems like, you know, it's a little bit more of a sober conversation, almost like a little bit more serious in terms of, look, you know, this is like you said, this is a modifiable risk. And so we need to take action. And I feel like one, one positive aspect of that is that, you know, you're able to at least get the patient to buy into this premise of like, there's more going on here than just the fact that you can't, you know, that your hearing has sort of depreciated a little bit, it could actually be the onset of something more, a little bit more serious. And so, you know, using the, the recommendation of the provider, it, it just seems like, uh, again, it, it goes toward this theme of a little bit more medical, a little bit more of a, you know, this is a, this is a true doctor recommendation, um, in terms of something that we're looking out for the betterment of your overall health and not just like, if you can't hear great, then wear hearing aids. There's, it's just kind of, again, it's a different conversation that you're having. You're right. Yeah. So, um, 
when we look at the different categories of results that you could have, so you have your normals, and those patients have hearing loss and they have the cognitive ability to fight through their hearing loss, they can compensate, but Heidi Hill says it best, at what cost? Like, what are you sacrificing to hear? And it's your frontal lobe, your working memory, like you're working harder. So we need to treat your hearing loss sooner than later before things may progress um, because you're using that cognitive reserve that should be going somewhere else. And so patients with the normal cognition in my clinic of 30%, they usually go forward with technology sooner than later because we've had that conversation of, you know, we need to get started to stop anything from changing. Um, the ones that are like in the mild range, those are the ones that we need a little bit more counseling because they still may struggle in background noise. We need to take into account the fitting that we do for them because um, there is evidence and research that shows proper techniques of fitting hearing loss um, based on their working memory scores. Um, and so those take a little bit more time and more testing to see what the right fit for them. But you talked about the people that put the hearing aids in the drawer you can actually make someone work harder than they should have to by fitting them with the wrong technology. Sure. And so based on that cognitive function, you may think, well, this is a mild to moderate hearing loss and they're in their sixties. This, you know, should be a home run. However, if there's something cognitively going on, you could actually make things harder for them. And that's when they say, all they do is amplify everything else, not the sounds that I want to hear. They're too noisy. I can't tolerate them. They end up in the drawer. And so we do need to know what we're working with in order to set it up correctly the first time, and then you'll have more adoption and better outcomes and also setting up expectations of what they can get. But, you know, the, the fitting that, that goes along with that score as well can have people, you know, more successful with their technology. So, uh, you know, you screen them, they fail the cognition test. All right, let's get you aided. And then at what point do they come back? Is it about a month or how long is the duration until you give them the chance to try again? For the retest, it'll be at their 60 day graduation appointment. So I do okay. see them in between that appointment, you know, for counseling and adjustments and such, but, um, I will, Readminister the handicap inventory aided this time, and we do unaided and aided speech and noise testing again and the Cognivu. And the reason for that is sometimes Cognivu doesn't improve. <laughs> sometimes it may get worse. Sometimes it's not back to normal like we want it to be. Um, because I really have a hard time, you know, telling them you're going to treat your hearing and your cognitive performance will get better because it doesn't always do that. But when you can review the handicap inventory, that will get better, how we've improved their quality of life. When you can show them their performance and background noise has gotten better as well. All of that together shows the value of treating their hearing loss so that if the cognitive performance is not all the way back where it should be, at least we've done a really big thing by improving your performance with your hearing. And now we need to go talk to your doctor and see what else we can do. So how often, what's the, I mean, like rough percentages of that. So if you had, I think, was it 55% are um, having hearing loss and low cognition. So then when you then fit them with hearing aids and they come back, um, roughly how many are still failing the cognition portion after they've been fit with hearing aids? So we did a statistical analysis on this and 79% of the time their scores improved, but not always back up to normal. So it is 50, yeah. 50, if they'll get all the way up to normal. Um, and so, yeah, that, that makes you think, you know, can we really <laughs> reverse things? I mean, there's a lot of other stuff going on in these patients. The hearing is just one small piece yeah. of that cognitive puzzle. So that's really interesting though, because I guess at least it is encouraging that, you know, almost 80% are uh, having a, a, at least a semblance of improvement. Um, and so there's, there's that, but to your point, I think, again, it does speak to it's not just about hearing loss. Like hearing loss is just a small little piece of this whole puzzle. And what you're doing now is you're helping to assemble a more complete puzzle. It seems previously, if it's just limited to the audiogram, that's like a really small portion of what's like, that's like um, a really grainy picture. And you're like helping to make that a little bit more higher definition and, you know, zooming in a little bit of here's what we're actually looking at. Mm -hmm. I can move completely away from the audiogram with this kind of formula to know the best plan for the patient, looking at the handicap inventory, the cognitive screen, the speech and noise testing, and their 
comorbidities. It's so clear, kind of, you know, what I'm working with were pure tones, word discrimination and quiet. It just doesn't give me what I need to right. understand what my patient's going through. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you feel like cognitive is just like kind of a one example of, of a broader theme here, because whether it's, I don't know how new Cedra is, but it feels like I've heard that a lot lately too. And just this whole theme of going beyond the audiogram. Um, but you know, this idea where you are making a much more comprehensive, um, evaluation and, and I'm not sure what other tools go into that, but the more, the merrier, I would imagine. And obviously Mm -hmm. cognition plays a, a big role in this whole thing. And so that's, you know, Cognivue plays that part, but are there other things that you've been incorporating over the last few years as well that fit into the same bucket? Yeah, well, what we're finding is that connection between the speech and noise and Cognivue, like how closely connected Quicksyn specifically is to the cognitive performance. So you can actually kind of predict how the patient's going to do on um, Cognivue based on their aided Quicksyn. And so we are running through some um, data at the moment on that. But, you know, if, if someone is not performing in the normal range with an aided Quicksyn, then you can bet that they have some cognitive problems going on. Um, So, and, you know, one thing about audiologists implementing this is patients love it. Like they've done uh, surveys to see through all different age groups, like what are the top concerns compared to like, you know, arthritis, heart attack, stroke and cancer, and people are worried about Alzheimer's. And so whether they're like 40 years old or 70, you know, they are appreciative that we've at least done this because it is something that they've thought about, or there's a family history of it. Um, and so it's really not a hard conversation to have with them because people are, are thinking and a little worried about it. Not that we're looking at Alzheimer's, but to just have a baseline and a screen to know how they performed, they really do enjoy it. And so my patients, Mm -hmm. some are like, oh, I got to do this again. (laughs) And other ones are like, okay, here we go. Let's do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I actually took a picture of that slide too, um, of the gentleman that was presenting alongside you at down at FCOM. And the thing that's shocking is not that necessarily Alzheimer's is the number one uh, disease that people are most worried about. It's like two to one. It's Mm -hmm. twice as it's cited like well up into 50 to 70%, whereas cancer number two is down below 35%. Um, so it's, yeah, it's one of those things that it's a horrible, horrible disease, but I, I do again, think that it speaks to this theme, which is the provide the audiologist has like a real opportunity here. Um, not to, not to fear monger, but to at least show that like, I am a, resource for you to help screen, not necessarily for Alzheimer's, but some of the maybe worrying signs that might be indicators. And so I think that's at least uh, the silver lining here is that there's more and more ways that that people can at least try to detect this. And I think the audiologist is really well suited to do that. Yeah, you mentioned Dr. Grizel, who presented in uh, come with me, and he is doing amazing research on Um, cochlear implant outcomes based on their cognitive performance. And so what he's finding is that if they have normal cognition, they should do really well in quiet and in noise after implantation at six months. But the folks that have poor cognitive performance, they can improve their audibility, their their CNC and quiet gets better, but their performance in noise actually gets worse. And so we never want to not do the implant, but at least setting up those expectations before going through that process is amazing to see that connection between the two. So, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so what's the actual implementation of Cognivue like, like how long did it take for you to put this into your clinic, get trained on it, feel comfortable using it, like help, help me understand the, the logistics behind that portion of it. 
Yeah, so I got it probably end of 2019 in December. And then starting January 1, I said, I'm going to figure this out. So I started with just my existing patients that were coming in for follow-ups. And I said, I have this fun new tool. Can you play with this and tell me what you think? And the feedback from them helped me, you know, prep other patients and talk about the results better. And so it took a good four weeks probably of doing it on as many people as I could before I was like, comfortable with the report and comfortable with prepping them how to do it because they all complain that the wheel acts funny and it does not <laughs> it's supposed to. Um, and so after that, I started, you know, charging for it when patients were coming in, um, just including it on all of the new patients, but also anyone coming in for a follow-up, like I wanted to know what was going on. Um, and then from there, you know, pandemic hit. And yeah. March of 2020 came and we all were quarantined. And that's when Cognivy reached out and said, um, can you help us put together some webinars? Like they went to the early adopters and said, we want to figure out best practices and look at the flow. And, and so we started recording a lot of stuff during quarantine to try to figure out what best practices were to, to do this. Um, and so then, you know, back in the clinic, I probably put it on the back burner just because I was trying to get my clinic back up and running and these new protocols from COVID. Um, mm -hmm. And then it was towards the end of 2020 that it was like, all right, I'm going to just we wanted to start a data collection process. And so I just did it on as many people as I could. And so that's the key is just like running it. And, you know, it's, it is new and it's different and it's tricky to have those conversations, but the more you do it, you see the trends and it's just part of the protocol. It's just like doing bone connection. It's just like right. doing speech and noise. Like it's not something that we just isolate and only talk about. It's just part of it. So so it's part of your standard scope of care now. Um, so you had mentioned you started charging for it. So are you unbundled or are you bundled? What's your practice mm -hmm. like? Yeah, so I unbundled during quarantine as well. Um, and so we would just tell the patients that there is a charge for a test that's not covered by your insurance, but it's necessary for diagnosis and treatment plans. Um, and so a lot of them were cool with that. And yeah. Then towards the end of the year, when everyone met their deductible, they don't want to pay anything outside of what their insurance covers. They were declining it. And I didn't know what to do because I needed that score. Like I really right. can't, I can't function without it. Like I want to know what I'm working with. And so for a while there, we were back to not charging for it, just putting it in as protocol for the comprehensive audio. Um, and then that didn't make sense. So we've switched to now it's an office visit fee. And so everyone coming in pays for my time and my Quixin and my CogDeView. Um, and it's a set amount that my front desk preps them when they make their appointment that your insurance doesn't cover it. But we don't call it a test. Um, because if they say, well, I don't want that test, it's not that it's, it's right. my time. It's reviewing the report. It's the whole office visit. So that's the way that we paid. Have you gotten pushback on that? Um, with the way in which you kind of now frame it, you know, I think it's because of the referral sources that I have, these mm -hmm. patients already are coming to me from their doctor. They trust me. They're coming from other audiologists. They trust me. They come from doing their research online. The only ones that I get pushed back are coming from their insurance. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't take their really insurance for third party <laughs> for hearing aids, but like, they're not really like the right referral. So the ones that, you know, they just, sure, they'll pay for it, but I've only had a little bit of pushback and I don't know if those are the right fit for me. Yeah. It's interesting though, because it is, like you said, it's something now as a provider, you don't really want to be without. So, you know, there's got to be some sort of compromise here, whether it's the way in which ultimately providers are able to bill for this, like if there's eventually a CPT code for it or, um, you know, the patient expectation, but the fact remains that it's a really important, it's again, it's like this piece of the jigsaw puzzle that now that you know, and this is what's, I think, a testament to Cognivue. Like if, you know, I think that's probably the thing they, they'd want to hear most is I struggle now doing business without this thing. Mm -hmm. um, so like, is that, did, did, was it Cognivue or was it even before that when just the whole way in which you approach your, the way in which you, you know, evaluate patients changed, um, you know, when you first started out, practicing audiology. And then today it just seems like there's been an evolution. Um, and obviously you had described the, the aha moment within the presentation where, you know, the brains obviously, you, you know, adapting and compensating, but would you say that 
it was um, recently, or has this just been kind of an ongoing evolution of your own personal journey of how you sort of think about what the right way to evaluate a patient is? It's probably been in the last year, honestly, and I've been working with Cognivy for two years, but where I've seen the correct algorithm, you know, it's, it's very, I remember I was doing a test and the patient was in the booth and the score he was giving me on the quicksand. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so clear. Like what I'm going to do with them? Because, you know, I started by let's give them some options. Let's talk pricing based on their audiogram. This is what I think they need. And then it switched to learning about, you know, the, the ear to brain connection and counseling that way, trying to take the emphasis away from the device and just saying we need to get started sooner than later. And now based on evidence from research in 2002, I know based on their performance of the cognitive view, actually what hearing aid to recommend. And so I don't even have to talk about options. I don't have to talk about pricing. It's like, this is what we found today based on these four components, which is your handicap, your speech and noise, your cognitive view and your comorbidity. And this is what I'm recommending for you. And so it's just less of the giving them options and talking about pricing Mm -hmm. and features. And I don't even go into detail of the manufacturers or whatever, because I know what the best fit for them is going to be. And so that's what's like so great is getting it right the first time. (laughs) And that just came because I'm learning all this stuff through Cognivu and going back to the cognitive hearing science and Heidi Hill has taught me so much in her Cognihear program. Like there's, we've all just kind of been figuring it out because it's pretty new for all of us. Um, So that's, what's exciting. Yeah. I saw the ADA panel that you, you know, when I was at ADA and um, when, when Heidi and you and uh, Amina and Lonnie was up there, I think there were maybe a a few others. Um, Again, it's like, I just think this is so exciting. Um, and, And you can really hear it in the way you talk about it, which is, you know, you've been practicing audiology for how long, how many years have you been a practitioner? 15 now. <laughs> 15. And within the last year, you're saying that like you kind of had to have had this game changing moment. And that's really exciting. I think is that, um, you know, maybe part of the challenge was that it's just that um, the ways in which the uh, evaluation and the assessment, like you weren't fully equipped and, and now like you can help people in such a more meaningful way. And that to me is like, when I hear converse, you know, when I hear people like you talking, it puts me at ease because I feel like this industry is going to be fine. This profession is going to be fine. So long as they're willing to, um, you know, challenge themselves to, to get better and, and like take it upon themselves to like push outside of maybe their comfort zone where like you, you know, you'd been practicing for 14 years and you could have just kind of continued with the status quo and, and, rode that out for however long, but it's like you actually forced yourself into this and now you're probably more fulfilled than you've ever been before. And you really are kind of, you've made a breakthrough in terms of how you're treating patients. And that to me is like, that's so defensible. You're going to be in high, high demand clearly by the referral sources. You have people that are coming to you left and right. And it just, it seems like it's elevated the whole way in which you're perceived within your community. And I feel like broadly speaking, that's the opportunity here is how do you, how do you elevate yourself up above everything else to where you really are like in a league of your own? Mm-hmm. Yes. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool. Um, so as we kind of wrap up here, um, you know, I guess my question to you would be, you know, for other practices out there that are looking to um, incorporate something like this, like where did you start and what's a good place to, you know, rather than just like um, outright determine, okay, I'm going to purchase this thing, you know, what's like the the best way to just at least start to kind of familiarize yourself and what are some of the things about it that you would recommend, you know, start here. And and this is the best way that I kind of understood how I would implement it or the feasibility of actually getting this thing into your practice. Yeah, there are great resources on audiology online. So we actually put a lot of time into those courses. And so um, doing those, or there's also on Cognivy reaching out to them. They have a lot of webinars as well. So you can talk to all of the early adopters and what it looks like because there's four of us, Heidi Hill, Noel Crosby, Altery, um, and we all do it differently. And so finding what, what looks 
to work best in your practice, whether it's just like me, one person, um, or you have multiple providers, we have kind of the solution. So looking at those webinars, reaching out to Cognivia, because they can point you in that direction. Um, and then they do like trials where you just get to get one and play with it and see what it looks like in your clinic and, and work with it and see if that's the right fit. Um, I love being a resource. Anyone can always, <laughs> that's, I do see patients. Um, <laughs> sometimes they get in the way of this passion that I have for cognitive, but um, yeah, I, I like um, answering questions and I'm always free to talk as well. So Awesome. Well, when you said that you all use it differently, and those were the two that I had forgotten was Al and uh, Noel. Um, what are what are some of those differences? That's interesting to me. Yeah, so I use it at the end of the appointment. After I've gone through the testing, I put the patient on myself. I want to instruct them, but there are offices that the patient will start on the Cognivue. The front desk can administer or start the test, um, and then they see them after. Um, some places have multiple locations and they take the Cognivue to the other offices or some have one in each clinic. And um, so um, I know Noelle charges specifically just for the testing where I think Al um, may not charge. And so just like the ways to figure yeah. out the economics too is very different. So how long does the Cognivue test take to perform? It's only five minutes. And so we've added some videos, like an intro video. Dr. Cliff Olson is the intro video, and he um, talks for about four minutes if you want to run it, but you can take it off. Um, and then there's like a little break in between each test that um, just adds probably two minutes to it. So seven total. It's just enough to get the reports ready, get the demos programmed, <laughs> do mm -hmm. things while the, the patient's taking the test. It's really cool. I uh, really, really appreciate you coming on today and sharing all this. Um, again, just a really exciting time, I think, for audiology because it is the there's like all kinds of new solutions out there that are available. And I feel like um, people are gravitating toward different ones, but I, I get the sense that, you know, there's just going to be more and more ways for practitioners out there to make themselves unique in the market and find, you know, whichever offering they want. It's like, there's a lot of different ways that you can piecemeal this and craft it together and come up with the economics of it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the one that really benefits are, are going to be the patients. And uh, that's, what's really exciting here is that I think, you know, the, the days of, of the patient walking away, maybe frustrated or feeling like they're, you know, they were matched to a solution that isn't really what they wanted. Um, we're getting closer and closer to, to kind of like narrowing that gap to where I think they're overall pretty satisfied with feeling like that was where I needed to go. And I, you know, feel comfortable now, you know, with the recommendation that I've been given. Absolutely. Yep. And, and also no more, your hearing's normal, even though they come in and they had a listening difficulty and they're not being told their hearing's normal because now you know, auditory processing testing, Angela Alexander's course, do it. <laughs> you can implement that, you know, with the cognitive screening, it just makes things so much clearer. So I know again, another person and another theme like APD is another, um, it's just seemed to emerge with a vengeance. Uh, and, and Angela's obviously been at the tip of the spear, really pushing that forward. Um, but it, it's, I think, again, it, it's changing the whole nature of, of the way in which I think people, uh, are looking at this state of what's going on and trying to make a more complete assessment and form, formulate a, a more clear picture of it. So all mm -hmm. of this has me really excited and uh, I really appreciate you coming on. So thank you for, for coming and thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We will chat with you next time. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.